Welcome to In the Oil Patch, presented by Shale Magazine, broadcasting from the Oilfield Expert Studios. Oilfield Experts, where you get the right products right now. In the Oil Patch is where, together, we explore topics that affect us all in oil, gas, business, and in your community. Every week, your host, Kim Bellotto, will visit with the movers and shakers in this fast-paced industry. You'll hear from industry experts, elected officials, and many more right here on In the Oil Patch. And now it's time for me to welcome on my guest, Peter Gardet, who is the executive Director of Research and Analyst for SP Global Commodity Insights. Welcome to Annual Patch Radio Show. Thank you so much. Before we get started on discussing a report that you were part of that was produced by SP Global Market Intelligence, I want to talk a little bit about your background. Give us some insight as to who you are and uh, your background, because some of the report that we're going to cover is directly something that you produce. So I want our listeners to understand a little bit about your background. Certainly. Uh, yeah, so uh, coming from the S&P commodity intelligence uh, side of the house, you know, uh, many of your listeners will probably be very familiar with Platts, which mm-hmm. is a, a price reporting agency that's part of commodity intelligence. Uh, I've spent uh, commodity insights, I should say. Uh, I've spent about 25 years now at the intersection of energy and finance. I worked at some other price reporting agencies before this. I uh, ran a startup for a while in the energy transition space, a very interesting and educational experience, and have been uh, you know, sitting in New York working with asset managers, private equity groups, investment banks to understand both uh, what the energy transition means for their legacy energy business, but also how to move and reallocate capital into what we are now think of as energy transition assets, whether it be renewables, whether it be along a climate finance vector, where they're talking about stuff like voluntary carbon markets. So uh, covering the waterfront in that way. And it's been such an interesting and dynamic place to be. Well, S&P Global released their second issue of a report named Look Forward. And I'm so sorry I didn't see the first Look Forward, but I do know one thing for sure. Our listeners understand that energy transition is well on its way. And understanding the financing and how things are working are also important because there's such uncertainty. And even if you have pensions, which most of us do, you want to understand what's happening with the market to make a better you know, assessment of where you want to put your money in stocks, private equity, whatever that may be. So we have a a very large listener pool of people. So I want to cover this report, but I want to start with your president, Adam Kensler, who is with S&P Global Market Intelligence. And what he wrote was the executive summary of this report that we're going to cover today on the show. So it starts with markets are entering a moment of fundamental transition. Markets have moved off the sidelines and into the spotlight for multiple industries and sectors. And while the public market remains essential to the global economy. Many companies today have grown to dominate market position without ever engaging in public financing. To understand how big this is, the record growth of global private equity dry powder is at at the end of 2022 approached $2 trillion. And so the need for data, tools, and insight is more important than ever. And to see that we're talking about private debt or private equity, whether you're a capital venture or you're investing in infrastructure, energy infrastructure, all of this is very important to understand what's happening. And this report that you guys created, Look Forward, 
Actually, with your economist, analysts, research, and data experts have surveyed and have come up with the current state of affair in the private market and forecast. So I'm very excited to get into this with you. The latter part of the report is where you specialize, and it's in the energy and transition uh, resources. But before we get there, let's back up and just briefly cover the other three components of this report. First one is market overview, private lending risk, private equity and venture capital, and then energy and natural resources. So let's begin with private markets. It's titled, Still Waters Run Deep. And this is pursuant to higher yields, lower volatility, and an uncorrelated return have led investors into deeper private markets over this past decade. So I want you to expand on that. What does that mean? Can you unpack that for us? Yeah. So the way I think about this is we talk to our clients uh, within S&P Commodity Insights is the word, the intersection of two revolutions. And that goes to these two pieces you're talking about. The first revolution is in financial and capital markets, where what the private markets have traditionally been relatively small, very targeted uh, asset types, very targeted strategies and in, in, uh, instruments. That is no longer the case. Private markets have solved for both a size and a liquidity problem. They're now very large and very liquid. In some cases, as Adam points out in that piece you just read, the private market component of an individual segment is larger than the public market component. And for those listeners who who aren't as familiar, the the difference between the two can be hard to understand. And in some ways, uh, the more you look into it, the more confusing it can get because they get very interrelated at times where you have private firms invested in public markets and and vice versa. But easily, most easily understood, public markets have that stock market listing or are exposed via a stock market listing to SEC regulation as a public entity. Private markets do not. Often that divide has been kind of at the qualified investor level, where someone who has a lot of money to invest or is a professional investor of access to private markets where the obligations to report or to you know meet certain kinds of standards are not necessarily as high and that's why we we call them sometimes you know they might be on the the dark end as opposed to the light end as far as transparency goes but it's essential i think going forward to understand how much private markets have grown and how active and liquid they've become because this is no longer just the old buyout strategies of the 1980s and 90s that we remember. This is now across every part of the capital stack. There's a discussion here in the report about how it actually gained momentum in the pandemic. And so did the pandemic, do you think, kind of changed fundamentally the markets because it had to? Or what changed in the pandemic in the way we're looking at the growth because it was significant in the pandemic? Yeah, it's one of those things that um, it's probably too early to give you a definitive answer. You know, we're still seeing a lot of pandemic trends play out. But what I will say is that during the pandemic, uh, there was a great deal of interest in 
what they think of as long dated or long duration assets. So technology companies, anything where the bulk of the returns are in the future. And in many cases, those are better suited to either venture capital or growth capital funds. You're not really looking for a equity style shareholder return if you're interested in that kind of play. And those, you know, you, everyone remembers how uh, some of the big sort of uh, early tech stage valuations got very big during the pandemic because of this expectation that a lot of those um, firms were going to benefit from a low interest rate environment and from different kinds of growth. Uh, so that was part of what happened. There was this sort of natural uh, market inflection piece. The other part is that traditional uh, institutions that are involved in the public markets, largely big money center banks, have become much less willing to uh, invest in a bunch of early stage firms. They used to take that kind of risk. And now it's both hard for them to do it from a regulatory standpoint. And as we've seen, uh, bank markets themselves are going through kind of a, a difficult moment. So uh, until that bank crisis is in the rear root window, they're probably not going to be taking that business. And so instead, those companies have sought capital on the private side. And here we go, straight into the private lending risk. So we know that, you know, backing up, we have, you know, inflation, higher interest rates, lower economies are all tests to both public and private market. And then here comes the challenges, as you mentioned, and here comes private lending risk, who's uh, coming in. The rise to challenge these lower investment cycles, test private equity strategies, the changing market dynamics and influencing investment strategies have all shifted the patterns, if you will. So tell me a little bit about what you're seeing in the private equity and these patterns that are changing. So the key thing that has been such a differentiator for private equity and private lending and debt funds over the last uh, year or two has been that there's a lockup. You know, once you allocate funds into a private equity for fund or any of these funds, you're, the capital is allocated. You're not getting it back until that fund life is done. In some cases, there's a little bit of flexibility around the edges of that. If you think of some of the real estate funds recently, where there are ways you can get in and out in a more liquid way. But largely, if you are an investor and you take on uh, private money, then you don't have to worry whether someone is going to come along and remove that for any reason. There cannot be a run on you. That isn't the case with public institutions. They have to mark their book every single day as the stock market closes, as the financing conditions change around stuff like treasuries and other benchmark products. So if you're exposed to public markets, on the one hand, you get a constant feed of price information and you, know, you can sell at any time and that's awesome. On the other hand, if what you're trying to do is navigate through a tumultuous period where the value of the underlying business is moving around, you might be better off having a more patient capital approach. And that's definitely played to the advantage of private market holders. Well, one thing has become clear, Peter, to me anyway, in this report and just seeing the changes that have been occurring, and especially as we're, you know, later on in the show, we're going to get into the energy transition as well. Uh, the green, if you will, time of energy. Um, everything is, it, as as we're going through this, we are 
basically, from what I'm understanding, writing our own rules in some ways. Uh, there, There is some data to look at, but a lot of it is the unknowns, which is why this report is so crucial, because it really does help say we're kind of in a place where we don't know where we're going. And it's really going to depend on you doing a lot of research to really line up where you want to be. And even with that, there's some unknowns. So there's some variables in there. When we get back from break, I want to talk about private equity and venture capital. Let's take a quick break. You're listening to in the Old Patch Radio Show, and we'll be right back. Any business can benefit from advertising to the oil and gas industry, but it's really important to partner with a marketing company that has a proven track record with this growing industry. Shale Oil and Gas Business Magazine is the one-stop shop that'll keep you in front of the customers that you need to grow your business. So let's start growing your business in Texas. Email us, info at shalemag.com. Again, that's info at shale, S-H-A-L-E, mag, M-A-G, dot com. Or you can call us. 210-240-7188. Again, that's 210-240-7188. And we're back. You're listening to In the Old Patch Radio Show. My guest today is Peter Gardet, who is the Executive Director for Research and Analyst for S&P Global Commodity Insight. Peter, before the break, you know, S&P Global released their second report called Look Forward. And really, it's a look towards what can you expect pertaining to the market, whether you're private lending, uh, private equity, venture capital, and also, most importantly, what's going to happen in the energy sector with all the green technology. So we've kind of covered the beginning of the report, private markets, and we've also covered private lending risk, what they're facing. And now I want to move into another part of the report, the third part of the report, which is private equity and venture capital. Everybody's familiar with these areas. Um, but again, a lot of this is new because the landscape is changing uh, because of the energy transition. Uh, the pandemic kind of tended to reset things, if you will. So in the next part of the report, look forward, the report discusses private lending times to adjust with the inflation. There's higher interest rates. We're all well aware of that. There's also slowing growth that represents a real test for the resilience of today's private lending markets. Tell me in the report, what does this mean for private equity firms and the the venture capitalists? Yeah, we're coming up on a real test of the private credit markets, which is that first part of the lending that you're referring to that's exposed to uh, rising interest rates. The private lending has been around for a long time, but it's always been relatively small and relatively niche. So easy to understand. It's become so much larger, and often the underlying loans are you know, split up and, and resold through the CLO market, the uh, collateralized loan obligation market. And so that has made this potentially a much bigger deal and one that's much more exposed to the economy at whole, rather than saying, you know, I'm an individual private credit fund and I'm going to loan to this one company and it's just that bilateral, you know, you and I transaction. It's become the kind of thing where now uh, a totally unrelated investor may have exposure to a private equity or private uh, debt fund loan 
you know, in a way that they wouldn't necessarily understand what the correlation was to refinancing risk or to the interest rates resetting higher, what the underlying collateral is. So I think we're not trying to imply that there's any sort of problem here necessarily, but more noting that there's a lot of areas in this market where there's a data gap between what an investor is holding and what they may actually, what they think they're holding and what they are actually holding. And so the more that firms like S&P and some of our competitors can help close those gaps and understand better what the actual risk and opportunity is around a particular private asset, that's something that I think can help resolve some of those those gaps in the market. And when it comes to venture capital and private equity, again, it's a problem of, or rather a, a outgrowth of size. You know, it's like a they've been so successful and they've gotten so big that now when something happens in the venture capital market, much less the private equity market, it will have implications for the bigger economy. And what happens in the bigger economy will have implications for venture capital and private equity. Peter, is this also involving, everyone has heard of crowdsourcing or crowdfunding and all, it's a huge, huge amount of money that people are investing in. Talk to me about that because our listeners are very diverse. A lot of energy experts are are listening to the show, but there's also the average person who dabbles in it or is understanding it. They certainly understand the higher interest rates and they're starting to understand what inflation means to them. But how does this market fit into this in the private capital? And of course, is this the same thing or is it a part of the whole crowdfunding and everyone has private funding that's less restrictive in the reporting that has turned into a big option for a lot of people? Yeah, so crowdfunding was really small for a really long time, a really tiny corner of financial markets, as you say, in part because of changes a few years ago to some of the regulations. It's become a bigger part, particularly of very early stage capital. So on the venture capital side, crowdfunding, you know, angel funds will participate more and more. They'll group together kind of a bunch of different uh, crowdfunding exercises and put it together in a way that's a lot, a pretty fair amount of money, like you say. Uh, It's an interesting kind of transition to the next part of what uh, I actually wrote about myself in the Look Forward Journal, which is that energy transition piece. Enough of the new energy technology is... Uh, capital intensive light, as we say. In other words, it doesn't necessarily require billions of dollars to create a new battery chemistry. What it really requires is a lab and some materials. That's not a huge check to write. And so that can be done on a crowdfunding basis. It doesn't necessarily need a huge institution behind it. Whereas in traditional legacy fossil fuel technology, if you're going to put together a new kind of, you know, uh, drilling platform technology, you need to be a multi-billion dollar firm with deep engineering expertise and very long horizons. So the just the different nature of those two technology sets uh, means that they can take different kinds of capital. I was wondering, because there's a lot of new, like you mentioned, technology that's coming on in the green sector. And and they're not like a rig or an oil company that needs a long time to recoup. It could be the next Apple product, potentially. And so I was wondering if that's a part of 
this potential private venture and it's a lot easier, a lot less uh, restrictive in, in the reporting, but they need to raise capital and there seems to be a whole lot of money available for that as well. When we get back from break, I wanna continue to drill down in this just a little bit more because there's been some changes in the past decade and I wanna try for you, I want you to help us have some examples so we understand how is this landscaping changing? And then I do promise we're going to get into the dark transition, which is the oil and gas transition in the report. Let's take a quick break. You're listening to in the Oil Patch Radio Show, and we'll be right back. In the oil and gas industries, you don't just need a workers' comp provider. You need a workers' comp provider who understands your business. That's Texas Mutual Insurance Company. At Texas Mutual, they've created the Texas Oil and Gas Association Safety Group exclusively for businesses involved with exploration and production. That means you'll have access to information and safety resources that fit the way you work. But the advantages don't stop there. As a safety group member, you'll receive a premium discount on your workers' comp. Plus, you can qualify for double dividends. You heard that right. Members can earn an additional dividend on top of the one you receive as a policyholder. It's all part of Texas Mutual's commitment to working as a partner with the businesses that keep our state running. Texas Mutual and the Texas Oil and Gas Association, two great organizations that are even better together. To see if you qualify to become a safety group member, go to texasmutual.com TXOGA. And we're back. You're listening to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. My guest today is Peter Gardette, the Executive Director for Research and an analyst for S&P Global Commodity Insight. Peter, before the break, we were discussing the Look Forward report that S&P Global released. And in it, it's very interesting. There were four sections covering you know, the, the array of different market changes that are happening. And uh, we have covered private market. We've also covered private lending risk, private equity, and venture capital. But obviously, our, the name of our show is called In the Oil Patch because we cover energy topics primarily. So I want to move into the energy transition. Everyone's heard of it. I think everybody's well aware that the train has left the station. And certainly in uh, Sarah Week, which we were fortunate to attend, there was a huge amount of messaging revolving energy transition. It didn't matter if it was hydrogen, new technology, uh, doing things greener. Um, everybody wants to do their part, it appears, to make this energy transition actually a transition. And so in your report, Born in the Dark, this report is researching a lot of things that are happening in the energy transition, cycles, emerging cycles, and then of course, climate investment. Recently, I had an opportunity to interview Rich Cashel, who is one of the senior executives at BlackRock. And BlackRock is getting beat up pretty hard about you know, what they're doing. However, they're pretty used to this as well. So I want to really drill down into what this report means for the energy sector, especially looking at the energy transition. So tell me about how private markets have grown exponentially over looking at the transition that's been affecting green energy, if you will, and the change. Yeah, it's a it's a great question and a, and kind of a big question. So I'm going to narrow it down a little bit. Uh, at the beginning, 
of the show, we talked a little bit about those two revolutions that are intersecting, one in private capital, which is just getting really big and liquid, but the other is in the energy business where renewable energy and the kind of ecosystem around it has just gotten so cheap. And that's a testament to something that we call manufacturing economics here, where if you are able to take a very simple set of inputs, you know, turn them into a finished product, and that finished product itself goes out and just creates more energy on its own, that's a very different proposition from something from legacy fossil fuels where you have to continue to have this very high operating cost you know there's a lot of handling in it um there's a lot of storage you know there's all these components uh it's a little bit of a simplification but one of the things i say based on a real project that we saw it can take five workers five days to install five megawatts of solar so if you think of that as compared to something like a gas plant of five megawatts, that would take dozens and dozens of highly qualified construction workers to put together a very complex underlying you know, uh, facility. And then that facility would require ongoing maintenance and ongoing uh, cost for fuel in a totally different way than a renewable energy asset would. So that particular kind of technology that is capital uh, intensive light, so it doesn't require a lot of upfront money, is a really good fit for private markets as they are structured today. If you think of what private equity firms traditionally have done really well in, it's manufacturing and it's real estate. In many ways, you know, energy transition technology that's succeeding is manufacturing and real estate. It's solar panels and wind blades that you put on land. And it's really the land part is almost the more complicated one because it requires an interconnection. So that's really, if you look at the sort of underlying economics there, it's a very compelling thing for a private equity firm. If they're able to sort of build up that long-term big capital position, they can move very quickly into these markets. It's a really good fit for them. We're gonna go to break, but when we return, I want to drill back down into or, or give a little bit more to our listeners about the amount of money that we're talking about in these investments. And of course, the pressure for companies to invest in these greener companies versus traditional oil and gas. And how is it affecting the markets on both sides? Let's take a quick break. You're listening to an oil patch radio show. We'll be right back. Are you a business owner feeling overwhelmed where to begin your business's online presence? Maybe you've spent thousands of dollars in the past just to be highly disappointed with the results. We understand because we were once you. Since then, we decided to hire the very best experts to help us and you. Let us send you our business profile that will quickly show you your Google business rankings in these five areas. Reputation, ratings online, website, advertising and social media, and search engine optimization. All of these areas really affect how Google ranks your entire listing. So if ranking on page one is your goal, pick up the phone and call us now, 210-240-7188, or simply go to shalemag.com slash business profile. We'll be in contact with you within 24 hours. Once again, pick up the phone and call us now, 210-240-7188, or simply go to shalemag.com. That's S-H-A-L-E-M-A-G.com slash business profile. Start dealing with a company you can trust and always find. And we're back. You're listening to In the Old Patch Radio Show. My guest today is Peter Gardette 
let me go back and just kind of talk about the amount of money that we're talking about, a trillion dollars in capital commitment from investors in your report. There were $260 billion raised for, from private targeted equity funds. And a lot of this is geared and shaped towards energy transition and climate infrastructure that's going to come out over the next decade. And these projects kind of are not really transitioning in any way, staying in contact or staying relevant to oil and gas. These are completely greener technology and green movement type projects. I guess I want you to tell me the differences between them. Like, how much is still oil and gas and why are they moving into, is it public opinion? Is it public pressure these companies are moving towards this? And give, I mean, $1 trillion is a lot of money to be investing in green technology. Yeah. So there are two, two ways to think about this. One is climate risk and the other is clean tech opportunity. So on the climate risk side, you've definitely seen big institutional investors who are concerned about exposure to physical and you know, financial climate risk exit out of oil and gas companies. They've done so largely, you know, they correlate the climate risk to the volatility of returns. They're concerned about being able to exit in the future. They're concerned about policy risk. Those are all very real things. Uh, I Where my practice is uh, as a researcher tends to be more around the deal flow. So I'm, although I need to take the climate risk into account, I'm particularly interested in the clean tech opportunity piece where people are actually raising and spending money. And that's that $250, $260 billion number that if you look at all of the private market allocations into so this is kind of net new money. This is not where people are just buying or selling existing assets. It's more a matter of like what we're going to do that's going to be accretive to the energy infrastructure of the world. That part has been really interesting to watch. A lot of it is going to these high cycle manufacturing economics plays, solar, onshore wind, batteries, biofuels, renewable natural gas, things that are well understood, have compelling economics, and can be done quickly. So you can do multiple projects within the same fund cycle and you know get uh, closer to your target return. Some of this other uh, you know, clean tech and climate elements that we've mentioned, hydrogen and, and carbon capture and storage, those are big infrastructure projects. And those are much closer to a traditional oil and gas play. And you've seen oil and gas companies have been much more interested in that part of the energy transition, hydrogen and uh, CCUS, as we call it, because it's so close to their home business. And it requires their expertise, particularly if you're doing a carbon capture and storage project, it's literally probably hooked up to a fossil fuel plant and requires pipeline knowledge and you know that kind of thing. So uh, that part is where we're not seeing as much activity yet. I expect there will be. The question is really how much oil companies and gas companies are going to need to be involved in that part. So would that in turn draw in investors back into those oil companies who left it because of climate reasons could now come back into it for the clean tech opportunity piece? In your report, specifically, you talk about the groundswell, private equity rises up, 
And you actually, there's real companies in here. And I want to get into that because in, in, in part of it, in contrast, you're talking about Microsoft's $69.9 billion bid for game makers. And Thomas Bravo spent at least $37 billion in cybersecurity companies, which is 10 times the amount invested by Palo Alto Networks, Inc. A lot is changing. So, and obviously this is an oil and gas. Everyone is diversifying, and we all have heard Kevin O'Leary talk about wanting to build a new refinery, which would be really needed since we haven't had a refinery in forever. But go into more detail of what are the changes that you're seeing in mergers, acquisitions, companies investing in things that they never invested in before. And it's all coming back into the energy sector as well. So can you give us a little bit more insight to that, this part of the report? Yeah, certainly. Uh, you've seen some really big funds get raised and some really big checks get written. I mean, if you look at uh, some of the more famous ones have been the the Brookfield Climate Infrastructure Funds, which in total raised something like $26 billion. That's a, a really, by that point, you're talking about real infrastructure. You're not talking about a marginal play. Uh, almost any other firm you can come up with, Aries Management, which is a big private equity firm, also raised a, a big, widely known one. There's a firm called Beyond Net Zero, which is part of a very large private equity firm called uh, General Atlantic. All of these have raised big climate energy transition funds. They're doing really significant deals in this space. I do find it interesting that most of those deals, uh, you know, we break it down, have been in the renewable electricity space. It just implies that the economics in that space are such a good fit for them. So they're going to need, if they're going to continue along that path rather than turn to some of these other technologies that oil and gas companies are well suited to, the electrification of everything is just going to have to continue. We're going to need to electrify the built environment, you know, electric stoves and heat pumps, but also EVs and, and that part of it will need to happen quickly as well. When we get back from break, I want to talk about dry powder bubbles and clean tech, what that means. And I also want to take a little bit of an opportunity to talk about the geopolitical situation and how that is also changing our financial markets as well. Let's take a quick break. You're listening to In the Old Patch Radio Show, and we'll be right back. In the oil and gas industries, you don't just need a workers' comp provider. You need a workers' comp provider who understands your business. That's Texas Mutual Insurance Company. At Texas Mutual, they've created the Texas Oil and Gas Association Safety Group exclusively for businesses involved with exploration and production. That means you'll have access to information and safety resources that fit the way you work. But the advantages don't stop there. As a safety group member, you'll receive a premium discount on your workers' comp. Plus, you can qualify for double dividends. You heard that right. Members can earn an additional dividend on top of the one you receive as a policyholder. It's all part of Texas Mutual's commitment to working as a partner with the businesses that keep our state running. Texas Mutual and the Texas Oil and Gas Association, two great organizations that are even better together. To see if you qualify to become a safety group member, go to texasmutual.com slash TXOGA. 
Shale Oil & Gas Business Magazine provides services like print advertising and digital marketing. Our digital advertising services include website, email, radio, video, and social media. Shale also provides specialized web services from website management to search engine optimization and social media management. Visit our website, shalemag.com. Once again, that's shale, S-H-A-L-E, mag, M-A-G.com to learn more. Shale is your one-stop shop for growing your business. Pick up the phone today and call 210-240-7188. Again, 210-240-7188. Farmers and ranchers are the hardest working people on earth and deserve a side-by-side vehicle that works just as hard. That's why Yamaha makes the Viking an all-new Viking 6, the world's first true three and six person UTVs assembled in America. Ranked number one in drivetrain durability, Viking outworks and outclasses the competition in features, comfort, and off-road capability. For more, visit YamahaViking.com. Most dependable claim based on a 2013 Yamaha source side-by-side owner study. And we're back. You're listening to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. Peter, before the break, this report, Look Forward, has mentioned a lot about the transition in the finance markets. A a very interesting report that helps break down all the different areas. And in the last part of the report, we're talking about an energy transition, if you will. Uh, A lot of the investments now seem to be moving toward what, what we've seen a lot of, the energy, the clean energy transition. But in this report, There's discussion of dry powder, bubble, and clean technology. For our listeners, and also for me, can you break it down of what these are so that way we understand in the report what they specifically mean? Of course. Uh, Dry powder is a somewhat technical term for simply unspent money that's been allocated to something. So when I raise a fund, I go out to, you know, colleges, foundations, pension funds, wealthy individuals, sovereign wealth funds, and I ask them to allocate money into my fund. When it's allocated into my fund, you know, when they give me a few billion dollars, but I haven't yet spent it, that's dry powder. And that number has just gone up every year for a very long time now and has become very, very large. Across private markets, it's, you know, in the trillion range in uh, energy transition specifically. It's closer to like $150, $170 billion. But the problem with that, or the challenge with that for investors is that it means that there's a lot of money chasing a, lim- chasing a limited number of potential investments, which can mean that the underlying price of those investments goes up and makes the long-term return less attractive. So if I am going out as that fund that raised a couple billion dollars from pension funds, I want to buy a, you know, a wind farm. But at the same time, there's two other funds that have done the same thing and are looking at the same wind farm. We're going to end up in a bidding war with each other. And that's clearly something that would be problematic just because it would reduce, once you pay a very high price, you're going to have trouble getting the same kind of lifetime return on that asset. Thank you for that explanation. So now we're going to move into the geopolitical side. I, I want to talk about that because it seems that everybody's jumping into it, and this is globally. So I'm assuming that everybody is happy that we're all moving into the green sector. But there's a lot of things happening as well. We have Russia invading Ukraine. In your report, there's a lot of unrest in the world. And in the report, it talks about how the green energy space seems to be in competition as well between Europe, the U.S., China, and India. 
And a lot of things that are happening all over the globe uh, seem to be also pertaining to how we provide energy to our allies, uh, what's happening in Ukraine, Russia, China, India. So can you give us a little bit of detail in the report, what you all see happening as we move into this competitive green space uh, with these countries? Absolutely. Uh, anyone who's been following the energy markets, even at a very, very high level or, or remove, knows that uh, conflict and uh, competition are not new to energy. You know, it's been part of the oil market since they were born. And I think uh, it's not surprising that as renewable energy and clean tech becomes a bigger industry, it is also becoming part of that same dynamic where it's the one of the areas in which countries and economies and uh, alliances compete. Uh, so the sort of thing that concentrated everybody's mind was the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act in August of last year. It's often somewhat misunderstood because it's perceived from those headline numbers as being you know, a straight up handout where the government is giving you money to do something. In reality, the way it's structured, it usually requires you to do something and then you earn tax credits on that activity. So it's a nuance, but an important one. Nonetheless, it was a huge headline figure. It attracted global attention. Companies in Europe, companies in Asia were very concerned that all of their business would then flow to the United States because of that big headline number. And there has been a sort of reworking of investment plans in response to the what we call the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act. At the same time, the opportunity here is obviously really clear to everybody. And it will require a kind of the entire global effort to rewire the entire energy infrastructure system. Uh, I think, so there was recently a G7 meeting in Sapporo, Japan, and they put out a, a big, long communique afterwards. And usually these things are, are really boring, to be honest. They're like not that interesting. It's uh, factors that everybody's heard before. This one was much more interesting. It got very into critical minerals and all of the supply chain elements for the clean tech revolution. So this is going to be something that all of the, these countries are going to be negotiating for years to come. It's going to be a, a hotbed of activity for a lot of geopolitical, you know, geoeconomic trade-offs and discussions. I think conflict's always part of that, but it's not only conflict. There will also be a lot of opportunities there, particularly for people who are interested in markets. Well, it does seem as though the countries you mentioned are very interested in looking in this space and continuing to uh, evolve in this area. At the end of the report, it also does discuss how the transition you all see in this report, that the energy markets are going to continue to be much more highly proportioned. The energy economy will stay in private hands. Can you give me some last words on what that means and how do you see the future rolling out with private hands and money and staying involved in the energy sector? You know, ultimately, whether it's in private uh, markets or in public markets, it's not necessarily important from an energy transition standpoint, except that it makes uh, oversight and forward planning much more difficult. Oversight was built around the public markets, unless that oversight is somehow extended into private market assets. It becomes very difficult to understand what an asset is doing. So if I build a solar plant and connect it to the grid, but it's privately owned, 
I, I don't necessarily know what it's up to unless except for the like, you know, very basic uh, regulatory filings it has to make. And from the perspective of a firm or a practice like mine, you know, we forecast these markets and we've found that unless we are looking at private market deal flow, our forecasts are way off. We can't use the traditional methodologies to do the same kind of accurate forecasting that we've done in the past. And so there will be a big, uh, a, you know, change around that as we try to update pri- uh, policy, as we try to update regulation. We'll need to understand what's going on in the private markets more than we do today. Well, and I think that that's why this report is important for everybody to go and read, because you do, it, it does make sense that since everything is changing, access to the data to really do a good forecast has kind of been muddied, if you will. It's changed in some ways. And so a lot of it is up to potentially an investor's feel or thought of where it's going to go and not necessarily always data-driven the way it used to be. And maybe it was COVID that changed a lot of it, and maybe it's just the environment and, and the transition we're going through. In closing, Peter, please tell our listeners where they can go if they want to get a copy of Look Forward and review it and read it. And I'm highly recommending that they do if you're interested in what's happening in the financial markets. This is a great report to read. Yeah, it's wonderful to be able to write for uh, an audience that can access everything this way. So this sits in front of our paywall. It's on spglobal.com. And yeah, I encourage everyone to take, take a look at it. You'll find that there are lots of ways to dig deeper on that site and, and research more as well. Thank you, Peter, for being a guest on In the Oil Patch Radio Show. Thank you so much. In the Oil Patch is where together we explore topics that affect us all in oil, gas, business, and in your community. Every week, your host, Kim Bellotto, will visit with the movers and shakers in this fast-paced industry. You'll hear from industry experts, elected officials, and many more right here on In the Oil Patch.